Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm delighted that on IDPD we're recording this interview with Kathy Martinez. Both Deborah and I are members of the WID board, and Kathy was also at WID for a very long time. So, and it has a long and glorious history in disability inclusion. So, rather than me give out Kathy's CV, Kathy, would you well, well, firstly, welcome. Um, would you care to tell us about yourself and and how you came to be working in the field? Well, first of all, thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much for um, for inviting me to be a guest on the show. I've been a fan of the show for a long time, and and it's great to to meet you all and 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 uh, have a conversation. So, how did I become part of the disability rights movement? Wow, that's um, I'm pretty old, so it's been a while since I've been active. Um, I guess it, of course, it has to do with my childhood. I was born blind. I come from a very large Latino family. There's six kids, all told, um, and two of us happen to be blind. And <clears throat> as of as of now, there's no known reason or cure. So, we Peggy is my sister. Um, she's a year younger than me, or two years younger than me. Um, we are the two middle kids of six. Um, so, as a as a child, as a blind child, uh, I was expected to do. Uh, I was expected to participate in family activities like doing chores and, you know, being a part of, of games. Um, I had a also a very large extended family. So I got lots of input from various cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Uh, my parents are originally from New Mexico. So I was able to experience what, what it's like to live in a rural setting. <clears throat> I spent many summers in New Mexico riding horses and learning how to bale hay and pitch hay. And, you know, I, I think I want, I was secretly, I wanted to be a cowboy. Um, um, and then, and then uh, I, you know, I grew out of that phase, but um, I'm still fascinated by sort of the rural life. Um, we, in, in my Southern, I, my parents lived in Southern California um, when I was growing up and we lived near strawberry fields. And I remember as a kid, hearing um, disputes between the workers and the growers about, about what, you know, like in those days, in the 1960s <clears throat> and early 70s, um, people would weigh their fruit and then get paid immediately. And I would hear these disputes and I would be like, God, why are they, you know, are there's always arguments at the weigh stations. And so I ended up getting involved in, in the United Farm Workers Youth Group, um, but they did not know what to do with a blind person. They really didn't. They were, you know, they were kind of tickled in a way or that in a very patronizing way that I would be interested in this issue. But um, I would attend meetings and I would often be asked to do phone calls since I could talk and somebody could read me a phone number um, and I could braille it up in my old Perkins brailler and then, you know, make calls. But I learned a lot about organizing and, you know, a lot about oppression that, that wasn't my oppression. You know, it wasn't about blindness. So I learned a lot about the world as a, as a teenager. You know, it was and then it was in kind of the late 60s, early 70s. And with the women's movement, the LGBTQ movement was getting started. Um, I <clears throat> was part of both of those movements. And finally, I found in, in the late mid to late 70s, found the disability rights movement. Um, and when I found it, um, I, you know, I, I, I moved up to the Bay Area, 
Um, there was a protest in 1977 at the federal building. Um, I got a, um, an, an invite in Braille and I went. I did not go in the building. I will be very clear. Um, I was at the 504 sit-in, but I did not go in the building because at the time I was in a, um, I was in, at a school for the blind here in the Bay Area. And basically they knew I was going to go to the protest. And they said, if you get stuck in the building, you're going to be kicked out of the school. So I, I was very careful. But that was really, an, that opened my eyes to, you know, the fact that there, there was such a thing as disability pride. And um, at that point in time, um, there was, we had a lot of support, you know, the, the um, uh, people with disabilities had taken over the, the federal building in San Francisco <clears throat> to protest the fact that um, the 504 regulations weren't signed. I know this is a very US centric um, event, but it did spur many, many uh, great things. Um, so after that, I, um, you know, I, um, I was in a relationship. Uh, I lived in Mexico, so I really got to, you know, feel what it was like living in a developing country. Um, my partner and I adopted our son there, and we moved back. <clears throat> and that's really when I started getting really involved in the disability rights movement. Um, my passion has always been economic empowerment. Um, my work with, um, you know, various chambers of commerce in in the U.S., the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, the lesbian. Uh, and Gay Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I, I was fortunate to have some consultancies with the ILO where I spent quite a bit of time in Africa. Um, and then <clears throat> I went on to work for the World Institute on Disability. <clears throat> Excuse me, guys. I know that is obnoxious for a recording. Um, I, I worked for the World Institute on Disability for, for about 16 years where I primarily did international development work. Um, and was able, we had bit, very big grants with, with Russia, um, Uzbekistan, um, and um, a few very interesting grants with Honduras and El Salvador right after uh, the, the, the civil war in El Salvador. So we worked with disabled veterans on both sides of the, of the war. Um, as I said, my passion has been economic empowerment because I believe that if you know we don't have access to resources, we won't have power in this country. Um, given this, given that we're a capitalist force here in the U.S., whether we like it or not. So, um, I after you know during my international work and 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 after I focused on um, economic justice for people with disabilities, which meant um, starting numerous projects, um, including a project for Latinos with disabilities um, that was completely focused on work and how do people uh, who are who are Latinx uh, or Latino, if depending on the generation you're from, um, you know, how do how does our culture influence how we matriculate through the disability service delivery system? So, you know, does the fact that we're disabled and don't speak English, yes, that does have an impact. Um, what about our fellow Latino brothers and sisters? Are they hiring us? So these are questions that I asked in like 2000. Um, the project went from like 2003 to 2007, I, or actually 2003 to 2009. So, um, and, you know, we made some headway. Uh, it definitely influenced the work I would do next in my next career iteration at the Department of Labor's Office of Disability Employment Policy, where I 
I had a project called Add Us In, working with lots of different um, minority chamber of commerce in this country, um, you know, African-American women, LGBTQ and Latino uh, and Asian chamber of, chambers of commerce. And, you know, my goal really it, it was to connect um, uh, people of color um, with, you know, the establishments that are run by people of color with those of us with disabilities. Um, to, and and the, the message is, hey, you know, many of us people with disabilities um, are people of color. We're, we're not all white. And um, our cultures influence how disability is, um, you know, how, how we handle and how we deal with disability. So <clears throat> since from the U.S. Department of Labor, um, I decided that we had passed, uh, uh, President Obama established a, a, uh, an executive order which really um, mandated that our federal contractors um, recruit um, and hire people with disabilities. And, 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 um, and we, um, so we established that, that executive order, which strengthened the, some regulations that, you know, that kind of forced federal contractors to be more uh, intentional about hiring people with disabilities. So I thought, you know, if I'm telling, I'm recommending that people go into um, into the private sector, I should consider doing that. You know, I, I felt like I had done, I I, um, I said I could, you know, I, I could, um, sorry, I'm being distracted by the chat. Um, I, you know, I thought, well, I, you know, I've, I've done what I could do here at, um, at ODEP and it's time to move on, which I believe as, as disability leaders, it's our role, it's our job to move on, to give new people, you know, to make way for new blood, new ideas. Um, and so I took a job with Wells Fargo as the, uh, the lead for disability and accessibility strategy. And I was there for six years. It was one of the best experiences of my life because it was the first time, honestly, that I had, since, since I worked with the form worker group, that I'd, I'd worked out of the disability bubble. Even though I was the lead for the disability work, you know, I, it was a the first year was really like drinking through a fire hose because a I had never worked where people didn't understand accommodations. Um, I never really worked, you know, in my adult life where where people hadn't worked on a team with a person with a disability. So, um, so it was a real it was a one of the best experiences of my life because I really went in cold, uh, knowing very little, I will admit, about financial services too. Um, but I, you know, uh, there was a willingness on the part of Wells Fargo. There was a, a desire to weave uh, disability into our diversity work at the time. And so I thought we were very successful. Um, I currently am now I leading a nonprofit disability law firm. I will admit to not being a lawyer. Um, I am definitely a second-class citizen in that regard, <laughs> um, but I'm loving the work. Um, the I work for the disability rights. I work for a group called Disability Rights Advocates. We, as I said, we are a non We are a nonprofit disability law firm, um, which we do high-impact litigation, meaning class action lawsuits that Im that have a very large impact. Um, um, to change systems, policies, um, practices, 
for people with disabilities. So we, you know, we've sued the the um, the the, Met, the MTA at uh, the New York City subway to make it more accessible. Um, we've sued school districts so that disabled kids can uh, get free lunch, which they weren't getting because they were segregated. So the work that we do is um, is high impact high impact litigation. Uh, and uh, I've been at, at disability rights advocates for almost for about nine months now. And here I am. Wow, that's quite quite the story, uh, and and of course I know your work. You know her name really is the Honorable Kathy Martinez because she was confirmed by our Senate and Congress. So she mentioned that she worked for the Office of Disability Employment Policy, which is part of our Department of Labor, but. She she didn't mention that that is the highest ranking position a person with a disability can hold in the United States government. So she's I think she downplayed a little bit what she has brought to our community. It is so powerful. She is just a legend and um, very proud to work with her and also work with her sister, Peggy. Peggy and I work together. So she's a very, very smart people. But I um it really was a very powerful position that you held at ODEP. But one thing I love that what you've done, Kathy, is like you've tried, you know, advocacy from so many different viewpoints. And I remember when you were at the um, Department of Labor, you had said to me, I think, you know, I think I'm going to, um, my next job, I'm going to go and work with a big corporation because you're experiencing all the different nuances of working with those different groups. Because I know often, for example, you know, as a vendor, I'm a vendor. So um, we don't always understand, for example, what Neil has to deal with um, when he's trying to guide ATOS forward with all of the accessibility and disability inclusion. There's so many moving parts. And so I just love that your background is taking you to all these different, you know, places. And now, of course, you're working with the law firm with lawyers, and I agree with what you're saying. Sometimes we think, goodness, we can litigate and we can sue the heck out of these people. And I love that, you know, recently, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, more of these uh, corporations want to work with our community, but it's a pretty big deal uh, what's happening. I, I feel like there's a lot unfolding right now, but I loved the work that you've done with being a, a Latino American, you know, and so I, I just, uh, I think the intersections are so important. Why, Kathy, did you why did you know that you had to address them from those lens? Because I know that we're really proud at Billion Strong that you're a special advisor to the board of directors and Neil is on the board of directors. So love that you're doing that. But I just am so am- amazed with the, your work, Kathy. And I know you explained a little bit of it, but you know, what do you recommend to the younger people that are trying to figure out where do they go? Especially, like you said, you wanted to be a cowboy when you were growing up. So, okay. So is that reasonable for me to be a cowboy when I'm a woman? And I was never uh, a boy. I will say and I'm, I'm, <laughs> right. I've never been a boy. Right. And so maybe, maybe it is reasonable, but um, so, uh, but I also want to make mo- one more comment that another thing that I love about your leadership, and you mentioned it briefly is that you will not stay at a position 
uh, for very long because you want to give younger people with disabilities an opportunity. And I know you and I have talked about this and that you're like, no, I knew that Jennifer was ready. So, you know, I was leaving. I knew that there are these talented individuals. And so do we have, you and I are the same age. Do we have some kind of obligation to present a legacy for the younger leaders with disabilities that are, you know, coming up? Well, you asked about four questions. I know I did. I'm sorry. Um, I had coffee this morning. (laughs) (laughs) So first I'll say yes. I I believe um, and I have I have felt that that our leaders have stayed in positions for way too long in many cases um, because, you know, the world is changing and we're not always going to be our, you know, the young 25 year olds that we were. The world was a very different. I'm 63 years old and the world was very different um, when I was 25, you know, rather than um, uh, than what it is now. So. So I believe we have an obligation. I believe there's enough work for everybody. You know, um, there is plenty of work to to bring disability to to an equitable place in the society. So, um, yes, I believe it is my duty as a an older leader <laughs> to make room. You know, to get out of the way. Um, and and there's plenty of work for me to do as somebody. You know, with with my experience. Now to answer your question about about you know about you know um, the Latino culture and disability, you know what I had been working in, in the international arena for about twenty years, and in two thousand, um, I just thought, wow, you know, here I am, I'm going outside of the country, and it was a great experience. Believe me, I learned how to listen. I think I really did learn how to listen. I hope I learned how to not be an obnoxious American to, you know, tell everybody what to do and how we did it because that is not their experience. Um, so, you know, I, I know I got so much out of it, but, but one day I remember flying in, um, <clears throat> I think, I don't remember where from probably Spain or Russia, because those were some of our last um, uh, contracts that I worked on. And, you know, I realized like, oh, there's so many Latinos here in this country who are not connected to the disability service delivery system, who don't have access to the rehab systems and, and, the, and don't, don't know about independent living and what that means, the concept of, you know, of, of self-determination. And um, Judy Human and I had a conversation about it. And fortunately, she was still the assistant secretary um, at OSERS, uh, the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services in the Department of Education in the US. <clears throat> and I and, and we we you know came up, and it wasn't just me and her. I mean, there was a lot of people having this conversation that we should really focus on um, you know, on people of color and how culture impacts people's view of disability and how. <clears throat> the intersectionality of race, ethnicity, and disability really does impact someone's t- trajectory and opportunities. So she was genius enough to create a, um, some grants and, and we had applied for them and we got it. And I, we started our project called Proyecto Vision. Um, and it had nothing to do with me being blind. It had to do with the fact that, you know, we, we saw a vision for the future of, of Latin, you know, Latinx folks becoming woven into our movement. And 
I think that, you know, the, the younger folks um, definitely have picked up on that. They've taken it to a new level through all the disability justice work. Um, and and I, I think it's critical, but we have to remember culture plays a huge role in how disability is perceived. And, 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 and while the, the disability rights movement in the US was really based on kind of middle-class values, um, um, you know, I was one of the few leaders that was not white um, and came from a very different place. And so, you know, I, I was my oh, I came from, you know, my parents were both very working class and, um, you know, their, their English wasn't great when I was a child. Um, and I experienced things, you know, that that resulted from the from their lived experience. Like if, if people couldn't understand my mom, they would. They would ask, they would, you know, yell at her. They would speak louder to her. I mean, is that going to help? No. Um, you know, I thought very often she was disrespected um, in, in the disability community um, um, when I was younger because she wasn't white. I mean, there was a lot of reasons why I felt it was very, it's really critical um, for our movement to weave culture in as, you know, an aspect, a, 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 a dimension of, of our, you know, of who we are as, as a disability rights movement. And, and I think, well, you know, I think the world is doing a great job of that. People are seeing that we are everyone. We, we're not just a, 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 you know, an island of white middle-class um, <laughs> folks, you know, in the U.S. Katie, I, I was about to go to ask you a question, uh, and then uh, your, your last uh, <laughs> uh, words have maybe changed uh, what I was going to ask. You know, I went in a completely different direction because you mentioned something very important that's related with culture. Uh, and sometimes we, we often see organizations, and this I need to make a critic here in the United States, who are enabling, you know, creating, improving accessibility and, and creating spaces for the disability community in other countries. And they want to almost tell the others, Here's, is, here is our roadmap and you just have to follow it. Without asking the others, uh, maybe you can learn something from you uh, uh, and bring it to our roadmap. How do you, what, looking, looking to your career and your experience, how should organizations uh, uh, approach in order to enabling uh, uh, these communities uh, across different geographies? Well, first of all, <clears throat> one of the things I did the most in my international um, development years was tear up the plan when we got to the country because it was pointless. Um, I remember going to Siberia and working um, with, with women. It was a group called Ariadna in Siberia. Um, and I, you know, I went with somebody who is a brilliant media person and, <clears throat> you know, we'd asked him, what do you want to learn? What do you want to learn? What, uh, and, and we had this giant plan. Okay. You know, we had a week. So today we're going to do this tomorrow. We're going to do this. When we, when we, I got there, I just realized this is, I almost said a bad word. This okay. is baloney. This is never, this is based in, is not based in their experience. They, it, it is completely separate from their reality. Um, and, and in a way, <clears throat> as much as I think, you know, um, 
international trips to the U.S. are important. I, I think, you know, it gives somebody a different perspective. But if you're going to bring disabled women here, I, it's great, you know, that they get to learn about what's happening in the world and see the U.S. But in my mind, or, or disabled people, I should say, bring somebody from the government, bring somebody from other NGOs, because when they go back to the, to the country, they're alone with their their power, the new power in their minds, but then they go back to the same place that's inaccessible. People have very low expectations of, of them. So I, I really would like to see more international programs where if, if we're going to raise the boat of disability, we don't just bring a bunch of, you know, wonderful disabled people to the, this country, show them what we've done. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think it, it's, but it's not all of it. We, if, if, when I was in Namibia, I was there for about, a, I don't know, I think about two, six weeks. And one of the things I learned, I was there to, to work with their women's office to, you know, to, to help bring disabled women, um, you know, the, the issues of disabled women in, into that, the planning of that office, because the war had just been, you know, the, the war had just ended. And there were many disabled women in SWAPO. Um, in, in the in the early 90s. So when we got there, you know, it, it, it's not our job. The, the best thing I did was bring everybody together and let them talk to each other and stay the hell out of the way. I mean, of course I could give advice, right? But my job was to be a convener and a, and a catalyst for conversation. Um, because what happens, you know, as you know, is when, when the, when, International aid leaves, things just you know tend to fall apart. So I I believe you know that in Namibia that was I feel like that was one of my most successful um, international consultancies. You know we left with people speaking the Namibian women speaking to each other. The, the disabled Namibian women had had knew how to contact the women in the president's office. They knew how to contact the press. They knew how to contact um, other disabled men. Um, so I believe that our job, you know, if we, I mean, we have to assess the situation. We have to listen to people where they're at. Um, I mean, I can tell you many stories of when I really, you know, realized I'm an idiot. I, I sh you know, the, our program is completely wrong. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. That, but, but that's great. So, if, so I, I mean, we wholeheartedly agree with your your assessment not not the one that you're an idiot by the way the the, the other one which is that we need to actually learn from other cultures oh my god uh, and um that that we can't assume that the context within which we're operating in our privileged techno techno literate western democracies will work in the context of someone in sub-Saharan Africa or in rural India or in parts of Latin America. So, so at the same time, we can learn from them because they are dealing with the challenges that they face and innovating. So we've, we've taken a, a really um, a keen interest in access over the years of uh, trying to find people that are doing things in in countries outside of the anglosphere I, um, I'm with and you. and really you know so innovators in you know, colombia and 
Africa and, and you know, we've had Nabil who works with Deborah on from, from the Middle East as well. And, and, and just today, um, we've, we've finished um, the judging of our inclusion challenge with the German Overseas Development Agency, where we were getting startups to um, pitch to, to, for, for a competition for inclusion uh, in education in Africa. And, and, and what was really great was, yes, some of these technologies exist in the West, but not in the way that they're being deployed and not in a culturally appropriate way either. Yeah. So, so, you know, they were working with DPOs and they were saying, well, yeah, okay, we can hear this stuff, but, but the text of speech voice isn't in my accent. Right. I don't right. like it. It doesn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you know, they were so so and then there were other solutions that had, uh, you know, were, were supporting the, the, the different local languages. Yeah. Those things are really important. And also, you know, the, the fact that they're mobile first a lot of the time because they don't Absolutely. have a big infrastructure. You yeah. know, so if you go to, to Africa, mobile money has been a, you know, a thing in Africa for decades. Yeah, Impesa, I think Impesa has yeah. been around for what almost 15 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and, and and here we're just sort of getting started. You go to China, right. you know, actually there's a big thing now because the government's restricting mobile payments because they you know realize that they couldn't control it enough because right. but it was ubiquitous. Uh, so, so so we really ought not to make those assumptions of, uh, that you know we know everything. So so I think that's something that we're super interested in and really pleased to hear about the, the work that you've been doing. In terms of the advocacy work that, that your organization does, is it focused just inside the, the US at the moment or do you have international disability advocates as well? Well, at the moment, it is absolutely focused in the US. We have offices in Berkeley, California and New York. Um, we do um, cases in other parts of the country and you know our goal is to um, expand geographically um, now that we're in the Zoom world of the Zoom, uh, um, I, I, it's possible. Um, we have a, a one lawyer in Chicago, um, and you know it'd be interesting. I, I um, have not thought about expanding um, internationally. There are such great lawyers. Um, I'm speaking. I'm thinking of like Janet Lord and you know um, Stephanie Ordaleva from Women Enabled International <clears throat> that are doing work. Um, we have we actually have not talked about expanding um but you know i think it's it's something to think about um our work has has made a big difference the uh disability rights advocates is 30 years old and um you know it started um very soon after the ada was passed and and the landscape was completely open um the, a lot of the cases that that they won have impacted millions of people with disabilities including myself you know, around accessible websites, around accessible paths of travel, um, education, transportation, emergency preparedness, um, uh, ride sharing. You know, um, we've we have uh, litigation is one tool in the toolkit. It is not. You know, it is usually we, we try to reserve it as the end result. Um, I prefer the 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 art of structured negotiation because. I think when you work with a company uh, and we and you negotiate, 
um, a solution together, uh, there, there's a, you know, there's a lot less money spent on lawyers and B, um, you know, it's a mutually uh, beneficial situation where there's more give and take rather than in a lawsuit. So DRA has worked with companies um, and is starting to, to do that more, you know, um, do more what we call structured negotiation so that, you know, so that there's a goodwill on both sides. So um, we big fans of Lainey Feingold here. So oh, um, good, yeah. Well, Lainey, Lainey's, so, in, Lainey's so, our girl. But, yeah. So so Lainey, Lainey, the coiner of the term. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Volume two well, out worked, now. By the way, I've worked available. with Lainey. I, I'm. I think I, I'm. I think she mentions me in her book, which I'm very proud to be mentioned because I've worked with her for many many years on a way to. Um, you know, work with companies, public entities, you know, to, to come to a solution that's mutually beneficial. Yeah. And and I think that this is the aim for, for all of us that, that right. have been in the sphere for a long time is, yes, litigation is sometimes necessary, but it's a, a, a tool of last resort. Correct. And we all want to default to collaboration as far as possible. Indeed. So, Indeed. So, so, I mean, it, it, for me, it's great to hear that you're doing this stuff. I'm very interested to see what will happen with international law, especially with the sort of some of these overarching regulations. What we're seeing at the moment is a trend um, on things like taxation, where there is international agreement that there will be at least a minimum level of taxation for, for international companies, for example, that that I think would be really interesting to see how that might carry over into human rights legislation and how we could then raise the floor globally for um, for people with disabilities and, and minorities in general. So, so that was the, the thought behind my question. So I, I, I don't know whether that's something that, that, that might be considered. You've obviously got great um, great connections globally, um, especially with the ILO, etc. Whether this would be maybe the next step, um, <laughs> it would be some. You know, I have not worked with the ILO for quite a while, so you know, the people I work with, like Bob Ransom, and um, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what, I can't remember the woman's name. She's an Irish woman. Um, I think they've since retired. Um, I haven't worked worked so much with Stephen, although I, I used to work with Deborah Perry. Um, anyway, enough name dropping. Um, I, I think anything we can do to encourage global companies to see that whatever taxation may be, um, you know, they may end up getting, you know, to uh, benefiting the overall workforce and the creativity and innovation uh, and, you know, strategy. I mean, I see, I, I see that niche as something that, um, you know, that, that we will have to develop expertise in quickly. Should should corporate corporate corporations um, be taxed? Um, and I think, you know, it's 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 a long term vision, and and I would hope that corporations can see that that this type of um, initiative could really raise all boats. So I'm, I'm aware we've probably run out of time, but but just that last thought before we thank um, 
our our friends that keep us going was I was on a conference yesterday and Carla Qualtro uh, was talking and she's the the Minister for Employment and also for Persons with Disabilities in Canada. Um, And she said that actually if they made the accommodations for all of the disabled people in the workforce in Canada that were necessary to enable them to work, they would see a 2% increase in their GDP. Absolutely. So, so, so it's not, it's not asking for, it's an investment rather than a tax here. So, so this, this is generating economic opportunity. Uh, and and on, on that note, I, I'll, I'll end it because we're, we're out of time and thank Barclays Access, Michael Link and my clear text for keeping us on air and captioned. Kathy, been a real pleasure talking with you and I really look forward to you uh, joining us on Twitter on Tuesday. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.